0: Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Haj Asad, and with me as always is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben.
1: Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone.
0: If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. We're pretty good friends, I would say. And you can find Ben's work all over the internet. In fact, I'm going to use this time at the top of the podcast to let him plug his most recent publications that he's been write, writing for.
1: You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Inside Hook, and at Driving Line. And there's also some project, that I, uh, some project, there's also a project that I'm working on right now that's not automotive related, but I wanted to talk about. And that's the graphic novel that I've been working on for the past couple of years. We're putting out the final two issues this June. So on June 1st, if you go to code-45.com, you'll be able to buy the entire Code 45 graphic novel series all 5 issues and uh we're going to be running that campaign for the whole month of June and then eventually we're going to be end up in retail thanks to a contract with Scout Comics but Code 45 is about a woman who is a subway driver in Montreal and she starts to hear about these rumors of dragons living in the tunnels below the city and everyone on the night shift that works with her is terrified Uh, of what they've seen, and so they start taking drugs and self-medicating to try to get through their shifts, and eventually, they can't tell what's real and what's not, and uh, Vanessa, the main character, has to figure out what's going on and how it ties into a secret about her own family's past. So that's Code 45, and you can find it code-45.com. You can sign up to be reminded right now if you go to that URL, but it goes live on June 1st.
0: Very cool. Um, And uh, you can find some of my work over at autotrader.ca, as well as driving.ca and Nouveau Magazine. Uh, and before we get started, I'd also like to take the time to thank some of our Ko-Fi, Ko-fi um, donations. You can find us at ko-fi.com slash podcast um, And if you like what we're doing, you can send a few bucks our way. So, Ben, why don't we get started right away with, um, with a new car that you've been driving. And I think you
1: kind of want to talk about that MDX again. Well, you say new car... It's not really, and yet it's still so good, Sammy. Uh, I spent a week with the 2021 Mazda CX-9, and Mm -hmm. this is the largest SUV in the Mazda portfolio. It has been around for, I want to say, four or five years now, and in terms of platform, it's still pretty much the same. I think there have been a few styling tweaks that have been made to it, Mm -hmm. but what's most impressive about this vehicle, and you brought up the MDX because we were talking about this prior to the podcast uh prior to starting the podcast
0: no all we do is talk about m accurate mdx that's true we have this is what our podcast would become we
1: have a secret mdx chat platform that's just all mdx all the time and i'm a little i'm a little shy about it which is why we don't really often mention it but uh the thing that's most impressive about the cx9 is that it's not a luxury vehicle it's not positioned as a luxury vehicle it starts at like thirty four thousand dollars and the model I had was the Signature, which is $12,000 more. So still, $46,000, right? Mm-hmm. It was in every single conceivable way better than the Acura MDX, which is a vehicle that has been serving the luxury market for 20 years now.
0: Okay. Let's, uh, let's do some uh, quick takes here. Let's talk about all of those conceivable ways. Exterior styling, better or not? Way better. Interior styling, better or not? Way better. I, <laughs> styling, better, not. Way better. <laughs> Power trade, better or not? Much better. Safety features.
1: Ah, it's a wash.
0: (laughs) Infotainment system.
1: Ooh, so here's the thing: better than the MDX's, but not great overall.
0: All right, I want you to I want you to get into some of the details here. I actually really do like the way the uh, CX-9 looks. I think it's a very attractive vehicle, and I think just as you mentioned, it's a vehicle that does not that somehow strikes that balance of looking premium without actually being premium. Uh, They do a really good job with the styling, both inside and outside. Um and, and I think it stands out on the road.
1: It looks fantastic. It's a rare SUV where when I parked it, I would turn around and look at it, and as I was walking away, just because the the lines, the curves, mine was black on black with black rims. I know it's a cliche in the automotive world, but it looked really good like that. As long as you know the sun wasn't directly shining on it, uh, it 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 really <laughs> Why? is. Why?
0: What happened to that? Did it go invisible? Well,
1: it's like a gremlin. I oh, mean, yeah. you've seen gremlins, but. It, There are so many three-row SUVs that are not good-looking. They're merely anonymous or kind of awkwardly shaped. And the CX-9 is not only an attractive design, but it's a design that conceals how large the vehicle is. You never really get the feeling that it's as big as it is. And it it, it does that from behind the wheel, too. It makes it feel smaller when you're driving it. Overall, it's a really impressive achievement from a styling perspective, I think.
0: And then... and then I think to me, the, the more impressive uh, thing is the cabin. I think there are maybe a few kind of cheap feeling like um, trim pieces in there. like I think the wood doesn't usually feel that premium, or at least that is the case when I drove it a couple of years ago. And you're always touching the wood too,
1: Sammy. It's disturbing, and I
0: feel like I like to feel like at one with the environment. It's right? part of I, your
1: process, I understand. Yeah, thank you. So, how was the wood in this car? <laughs> you know, you know, I don't touch it out of respect for you, oh. uh, but I did look at it. it my car didn't have wood; it had like a metal dash. Um, oh, like it, the, no,
0: that's no fun to touch.
1: The dash is mostly plastic with kind of like metal highlights, but I, I agree with you. I think the interior looks good. The seats are very nice. The seats are, are napa leather in the signature model, and uh, the color, it, it gives a splash of color to the interior that I think um, is a nice detail. I agree with you about the switchgear. Not all of it feels premium. I mean, a lot of it is the same as you would find in any other Mazda. But that's not a terrible thing, and the layout itself is quite intuitive and decent to interact with. I do think that, it, it compared to the MDX, huge step above in terms of presentation, which, again, is astounding to me, considering how much less expensive this car is uh, almost across the board, and the fact that it's like five years older than the ostensibly redesigned Acura.
0: All right, but, come on, is there a giant dial on the center of the dash of the cx9 that allows you to change the drive modes on it because that's what every three-row crossover really needs
1: (laughs) that dial no but there is another dial that i do want to talk about because it is problematic at best and that's the dial on the center console that controls mazda's infotainment system so earlier i said it's better than the mdx's but it's still not great that's because the mdx's as we covered last week is horrible due to that little touchpad and the unusual and weird and just plain frustrating interface, how you interact using the touchpad with the screen. So Mazda has a system that could best be described as complicated and slow. Those are the two things about it that I had the biggest problems. Every time I got into the car, it took forever to pick up my phone, make the Bluetooth connection and start playing my music. By forever, I mean like between 30 seconds and two minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot. But it's the difference between getting in, buckling in your seatbelt, and knowing your music's going to start, and being halfway down the road and realizing for whatever reason, Spotify is not playing. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, totally. And I will admit that my experience with Mazda's um, infotainment system and using Android Auto is also kind of frustrating as well because that's not a touchscreen. You have to do everything through that um, dial and it just doesn't feel very intuitive there's no. sometimes just want to do something like quickly especially like scrolling through a map or moving around on a map can feel really like janky
1: I've given up largely on using any automotive navigation system for that reason. I just use my phone because for the the exact reason you just described. Plus, there's another weird issue where you live where I live. And that's I I speak English. I keep the car in English. But if you keep the car in English, you can't use any of the voice commands for navigation because all of the streets in Montreal have French names, like 80% of them. So the car doesn't understand anything I say. And when I'm entering in a name, it often doesn't understand or suggest the right thing either. So it's kind of a problem. So I've just kind of washed my hands of that. But uh, I agree with you that using the dial is difficult because unlike, say, iDrive from BMW where it's also dial-based and backed up by a touchscreen, the, Mm -hmm. the menus inside the Mazda are very nested And you don't always know what options you're going to find based on uh, the menu that you're on. Like trying to figure out how to turn something on or off can often be a challenge. This is something I'm going to talk about next week on a Mercedes-Benz product that I've been driving where I encountered some even weirder instances of that. But on the Mazda, really don't like the knob system it's something i think they need to either improve or just back up with a touchscreen i know in the past they've had a few, what was the recent vehicle that had a touchscreen it was the cx3 or the cx5 yeah i think it was the cx5 and where they, it had or the cx3 it had a, you're right it had a
0: touchscreen that only operated in park and then every other um every other interaction while you were on the road needed to be done through the that rotary dial. Yeah,
1: and then they started pushing the, the screens farther away from the driver and eliminating that feature completely. So that's a bit frustrating. There's one other aspect of the CX9's interior that is not great, and that's the third row. Um, third rows are pretty much not something you'd ever want to use in most of these crossovers. This is the kind of thing where you, you put packages or kids back there. And when I say kids, I mean small kids. The CX9 is the perfect example of that. Um, part of the reason why it doesn't feel super big is because it's not super big, and it's fine for cargo. But if you wanted to stuff a person back there, you're going to want to think twice. Okay,
0: so the the other thing I want to talk about, and especially, um, I think it's important to talk about, is the powertrain, which I think is a 2.5 liter turbocharged four-cylinder engine, right? This that's correct. No, it doesn't.
1: And and the MDX did. And, you know, uh, you're like, oh, turbo four versus a large displacement V6. I should probably like the naturally aspirated motor. No, I found that the, you know, the, the CX-9 was as fast as I needed it to be. I think it's like zero to 60 in about seven seconds. I'm trying to find an exact horsepower number. In my head, it's like 270. That's <laughs> that's the number I, I, I think it is. Sorry, it's 250 with 320 pound-feet of torque. That That's a decent amount of torque, Sammy.
0: That's a lot of torque. I think that's where the the engine really delivers, um, it, and that's what you feel really most of most of all.
1: Really, yeah, it's true. It has a six speed automatic transmission as well. Uh, again, it's. I kind engine. of wish
0: that that was a bit uh, of an upgrade too. I think
1: I didn't that- have a problem with it. I know what you're saying, and it, on paper it doesn't look competitive, but I never felt like I needed more power. And even you know, accelerating on the highway, even it it was quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't get a chance to drive it with more than a couple passengers in it, so I can't really say how it feels completely loaded up. But it it is surprisingly competent given the size of the vehicle. I'm, I'm trying to find a weight for the uh, the automobile right now. Oh, it's 4,300 pounds, which is really not that bad. Like that's less than a Charger Hellcat. So if you're if you're a three row crossover and you you weigh less than a Charger, I think you're doing okay. <laughs>
0: um okay anything else like talk to me about the driving dynamics because i think this is where mazda usually like over delivers and these are things that you just can't see on a spec sheet or a pricing sheet or something like that you need to feel how the drive how the car drives and i think even for a three-row crossover Mazda manages a little bit of its magic here
1: it drives well uh, i have yet to drive a three-row crossover that i would call fun or engaging mm-hmm. but What I liked about the CX-9 is that it wasn't completely numb from behind the wheel. I had a pretty good idea of what was going on when I turned the steering, uh, and the suspension had a certain amount of feedback. At the same time, it didn't bounce me around, which is great because Montreal roads are terrible. And you're going to experience that. You know, I I talked a lot about the luxury features that come with the signature trim, but how it drives, the power we just talked about and the handling that is really decent, you're going to get that even in the base sport model. Yeah. So uh, And what's interesting, too, is even the base sport model comes with um, radar cruise control. So you have uh, a stop-and-go capability in a $34,000 vehicle. That's uh, that's pretty decent. And for $1,000 more, you go from sport to touring and you get leather and, and, and a nicer second-row seat and a power tailgate. So that's kind of a no-brainer. And I feel like the touring is probably the sweet spot. Of the CX-9 lineup. I mean, once you get past that, you're really starting to spend money. The, the next step up is this weird thing called the Carbon Edition. Which is maybe the model I had, actually. Um, or at least aspects of it, because it has a lot of... Well, no,
0: cause... I love that. I love that. The next step up is this weird thing called the Carbon Edition, which yeah. I had. No, <laughs> but it, it's because... It's like, that sounds so disconnected.
1: <laughs> it's because I talked a lot about the 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 um, styling of it with, like, the 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 Carbon Edition has, like, metallic black wheels and everything's black gloss and exterior black and gray and stuff. So mine was, like, a black paint instead of the gray metallic paint you'd see on the Carbon Edition. So I think I had, like, certain elements... Elements of that vehicle on the signature trip. Okay, um, and and um, tell me um, about
0: the safety features or or driving or driving assist or anything that kind of like ups the the value here with this with this yeah. Mazda. You nothing, mentioned
1: nothing really stood out for me. Okay, like other so, than, other than the you know like the the cruise control that I was just talking about. There's, there's not much like that I was really. There's no self driving or self steering that I that I noticed or used. So. Mm-hmm. So then, I mean, what is, it, is, what is it then that
0: really makes you feel like this Mazda CX-9 is, is – is it overlooked in the segment, first of all? Yes, and definitely. When, I think so. And then when you described when, – when pre-podcast we were talking about the MDX um, and we brought it up again here, what is it that just makes this thing thrive where the MDX doesn't?
1: Because it was, it's, it's a competently executed design that actually looks good, drives well, and provides value for the money. And I don't think the MDX does any of that. Uh, and I also think this just feels nicer inside and looks better than the the MDX which is embarrassing considering the latter is a luxury product. But there's, there's there's something I wanted to talk about a little bit further. When you say it's overlooked, uh, you're going to be talking about a couple of vehicles that tend to dominate in this segment or, or are starting to dominate in this segment mm-hmm. in terms of sales. And I think the CX-9 is as good as they are, despite being older. And I don't think it gets the credit that it deserves for that. Okay. Um. This is where you segue into talking about what those cars are.
0: So, yeah. I mean, I, I drove recently um, the one of the most popular products in this segment, which is the Toyota Highlander. I drove specifically the gas-powered version of this car, which is a, um, a V6-equipped version of the vehicle. And um, I also compared it to a, a Kia Telluride, which is an up-and-coming vehicle in this segment. So one of the most important things, I think, to talk about is the – is just how, I don't know, like, it feels like Toyota kind of phoned it in with this uh, with this Highlander. I think it's a very good Highlander, but then when you take into comparison the Telluride and all the things that Kia has really pushed um, with their vehicle in terms of value and design, and then you have something like the Mazda, which pushes the envelope in terms of premium features and, uh, and kind of like... Um, this aura of a of a higher class vehicle, it makes me wonder what makes the Highlander so popular. If if and what that is, because there's so little here that I really think is is worthwhile in the in the. You uh, and I Highlander.
1: both. You and I both know what makes the Highlander so popular. It is the epitome of do as you're told. I mean, that's that is the driving force behind so many of Toyota's sales successes. It's, these are vehicles that are purchased and repurchased by people who have bought into Toyota's well-established mythos of being super reliable and generally all-around decent vehicles. And that's true of a lot of the automobiles in their lineup. It's not like Toyota's lying to anybody, but th- that doesn't mean that they're the best option. You know what I'm saying? Right.
0: Um, and I I just struggled. I mean, I really do. And the model I had was this um, was this kind of sporty XSE model of the of the Highlander, which... What does sporty mean? Yeah, exactly. What does sporty mean? It had bright red leather seats. It had some carbon fiber-looking trim on the inside. Uh, It has a different grille and um, some blacked-out elements on the the exterior. All of these things that, like you mentioned earlier, um, try to mitigate that anonymous um, look of these three-row crossovers... And I don't think it succeeds very well. In fact, I think the vehicle is, is obnoxiously, um, is, is obnoxious looking. This grille looks ridiculous. It it has, this lower grille has like, it looks like a Gillette ad gone wrong. Like there's a <laughs> wow. bajillion like slats. It looks like a razor blade.
1: See, now I've driven the Highlander and I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I find it's a, a competent vehicle that doesn't really stand out in any way. And yet it's crushing the CX-9 in terms of sales. Uh, and, and, I, and I look at, like, if you were to park these two vehicles side by side, again, Highlander much newer than the CX-9, the CX-9 still wipes the floor with it in terms of style.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think in a lot of other ways. I mean, Mazda has, is using this turbocharged four-cylinder engine, um, and Toyota, is off, its gas model is a 3.5-liter is a V6, a naturally aspirated V6 which makes under 300 horsepower, uh, is paired with an eight-speed automatic transmission that can sometimes struggle to get out of its own way. Um, and, and, you know, when you prod the throttle to get a downshift, it doesn't do that. And sometimes you're just like, why aren't I going as fast as I want to go? <laughs> well, the reason um, you're not
1: going as fast as you want to go is because you're driving a Highlander. On, mean- the
0: hand, on the other hand, the, we've both driven the hybrid version of this car, which is equipped with a 2.5-liter four-cylinder engine and their hybrid powertrain. And this is the one to get. I think all of Toyota's now, if you have the option of a gas model and a hybrid model, the hybrid is probably the better purchase.
1: I mean, why don't we have a hybrid um, Tundra?
0: I don't. I mean, I don't know if they have – I don't even know if Toyota knows that they still have a Tundra in their (laughs) I feel
1: bad for the Tundra department. Like, I imagine that when Toyota moved its headquarters from California to Texas a couple years ago, they just forgot to tell the Tundra people – and there's a small group that just keeps coming into the office like, you know, yes,
0: oh, it's quiet
1: in the office today. I guess I'll get a little bit of extra work done. And no one really knows. And the weirdest part of that is that the Tundra is actually built in San Antonio. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, I mean, of course, you know, I, I'm curious because I i don't know if Toyota will eventually turn its trucks into hybrids Um I just don't know. I think there was a rumor that the, the upcoming Land Cruiser, Global Land Cruiser, will be getting a, turbo, a turbocharged V6 or something like that, which doesn't seem like it would suit the character of an off-road truck. But um, I do want to talk a little bit about these characters of off-road trucks because I drove the Kia Telluride, which is a very boxy, rugged-looking vehicle. And style-wise, I think this thing really stands out. It looks massive. Um It is pretty big and spacious, so I think it has that on the c x nine I also think it's a tiny bit more expensive than the c x nine with a starting price around thirty two thousand dollars and then a fully loaded model comes in at forty two um, so, so I, maybe, th- I guess it is a little to- a little bit comparable
1: so that, yeah they're definitely compar- i mean these are head to head in the segment right they're three row crossovers. Right. Uh, I think the CX-9 has a nicer interior and maybe a bit smoother drivetrain, although the Telluride drives very nice. Uh, it's right. really interesting to see how different they are stylistically. I think the Mazda looks better. I think the Telluride is a good design regardless. It's just personal preference for me. It's, it's I think, an example, too, of a... Um, an intentional design, whereas the Highlander is merely a vehicle that's, you know, filling a white space in a segment where Toyota has to be, they, they have to have a vehicle there. It doesn't matter too much what it looks like for them because they have a uh, a steady stream of buyers that can funnel towards wow. the Highlander when they reach that part of their lives. Whereas Mazda and Kia, they're more challenger brands. And as a result, they have to build something that is going to attract attention. And I think both of those vehicles have succeeded in that.
0: Okay. That's a lot to digest. I don't know about the Highlander. I mean, I, I, I think I understand what you mean in terms of saying the Highlander fills a white space, but this is one of the best-selling products in Toyota's lineup. Yeah, right? but it's, like, it's
1: not a vehicle that Toyota built its reputation on. It's not a vehicle that they set out to build. It's a vehicle that exists because people want to buy three-row SUVs, right?
0: Well, talk, so then talk to me about why isn't it a vehicle that Toyota builds its reputation on? And those... To me, we have three vehicles, maybe a fourth, in the Camry, RAV4, and Corolla, and then maybe their, their trucks, their Tacoma. Those are the sort of vehicles. I, I would agree that with you. Has, I would agree with built you. built a reputation on. But the Highlander is equally successful in terms of sales. But I Why think that, is there
1: no reputation there? It's so because, weird that they haven't given it any sort of love because they don't need to because the Highlander is merely the next step on a staircase that you take after you've grown out of the RAV4 that's all it is that's why the sales figures are so good because people have a good experience with the RAV4 and then move on and have a good an equally good experience with the Highlander because they don't really feel the need to look elsewhere because they've they're inside the Toyota ecosystem it's it's a perfect system it works very well and a lot of car companies do this so uh, if you're Mazda though you can't rely on that you can't rely on people being like, well, you know, I, I had a Mazda 3. Maybe I will buy a CX-9. or uh, Kia especially had no real way of getting people into a Telluride somewhere they've never been before until a couple years ago. So they I have a different think perspective.
0: They, they went top down a little bit with their products. I think the Stinger and the Telluride showcase how good Kia can design and, and build a vehicle. And that's by necessity,
1: um, right? They've got, to get, they've got to get butts in those seats.
0: Right, and they, they have to do and it in the in dealerships, a, right? Yes,
1: that's another good point because then they, even if they don't sell a Telluride, maybe they sell something else.
0: And, yeah, and I think they're not far off of that. I've seen some pretty strong critical response to the new Sorento, um, and um, while I drove the K five uh, last week and wasn't you know I wasn't smitten with it or anything, it's a totally good um, midsize sedan.
1: A totally good mid-sized sedan. That's, that is that's totally quotable.
0: acceptable mid-sized <laughs> a sedan. A perfectly
1: cromulent commuter.
0: <laughs> um, what also stands out to me in these vehicles um, when talking about the Telluride and the Highlander, and maybe you can chime in a little bit with the CX-9, are features. This Telluride is loaded with all sorts of stuff that um, – I was hoping that the leading seller would have or a challenger like the um, CX-9 would have. So tell me, did you have ventilated seats, for example?
1: I did not. Okay. Did not not to my recollection. Up- did
0: you have a head-up display? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, did you have wireless phone charging?
1: No, but I never
0: use no. it. Oh. Well, I, the thing about wireless phone... through the air?
1: No, but the thing about wireless phone charging is you have to have a phone that supports that feature.
0: Right. And you'll
1: never have one. I have had them in the past, but a lot of a lot of phones just don't support that.
0: Um, and additionally, getting to the third row of the Telluride is um, is manageable. Trying to get into the third row of the of the Highlander is actually a bit of a pain. The, the 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 second row doesn't like slide forward enough, so it's like a really awkward way of getting into that third row. It makes me again realize, you know, reiterate what you said that the third row can sometimes be like it's just for show it's like performative art it's not necessary um, you're talking for these a lot buyers.
1: about you're talking a lot about getting into the third row but what i really <laughs> want to know is getting out of the third row like escaping the third row how, how much harder is that
0: Uh, it's just as difficult. Um, I think when you, I think the, the added benefit though, is when you're in a third row and the passenger door is open, technically like you see the light, you see the light at the end of the tunnel and you know that you can just make a dash for it and just fall out face first onto the, onto the pavement when that door is open from the third row.
1: So you're just falling out face first, like, like it's like the day after prom and you're getting out of a limo. Is that's That's your strategy for leaving the third row of any crossover.
0: (laughs) Um, Another interesting thing that I noticed in the Telluride (laughs) was that it has USB ports um, for charging your devices all over the car. Um, I only have a limited number of USB devices, so I had to start borrowing some from, like, my my neighbors. Were you trying to drain the battery? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly it. But, you know, one of these ports is actually in the back of the front seats, okay? So, like, the seat back of the front seat, so... And I would I was wondering like if you've ever been on an airpo on an airplane and you can feel the person behind you like jabbing at that like t- that touchscreen I wonder if the passenger or the driver would feel somebody fiddling with their USB port on their
1: seat behind them Why didn't them. you test that?
0: I don't know. I I only one person been. I can't.
1: Well the the the, the advantage of a 3 row crossover is unlike an airplane if someone does do that to you you can stop and eject that person from the vehicle. <laughs> That's right.
0: That's 100% right. Um, I just, I'm just really impressed with the amount of features and the technology that's found in this Telluride. I just need, I need to see a better powertrain. This is probably my biggest issue with the vehicle. It's V6. It's a 3.8 liter V6. It makes 291 horsepower and 262 pounds of torque, which is much less torque than that CX-9 that you drove.
1: But, but 40 more horsepower. Okay, sure.
0: But... Weight-wise, um, I don't think that this – I don't have the – yeah, maybe I do have the the curb, the curb weight. Let me try I doubt you. it. I doubt you have any numbers. The curb weight uh, for this all-wheel drive version of the car is third, is uh, 4,400 uh, 4, pounds. So it's about the same. Um, and there's something about this vehicle. It just never feels like it's moving in a particular hurry. I don't know if that's a transmission thing, if that's the way the motor is tuned. Um, I've tried it in a bunch of different drive modes, and I just never felt like it was a a crossover that wanted to hustle in any, No, I in agree. Any way.
1: I agree with you. I think you're very right, and I think that this is a vehicle that is screaming for that twin turbo V6 that is in the Genesis products. I don't know mm-hmm. if they can mount that transversely, but if they can, I, I would love to have it in this vehicle. I, but it's totally unnecessary, right? Like it is. I mean, maybe it transforms this
0: product from feeling like just a commuter or daily driver into something that's like a like a a road trip weapon. Like it would make it feel so much better on longer trips that you could complete a little bit faster because you didn't have to worry about passing with you could you could have no fear of passing anybody with it. I think that's it. I really am impressed with this vehicle. I'm surprised it doesn't sell better. I am, and, and conversely, I'm so surprised at how popular the Highlander is. When it seems like there's nothing in its favor um, going right, I massive
1: just brand equity and a large dealership, um, a large dealership network. Those are two things that really help the, the Highlander. So, what happens next for Kia if they want to get in this? I mean, we know they Mons- keep going. They keep going. They, they don't. They don't give up. I yeah, mean is
0: like... a small automaker, so we know that there's only so much that they can do, you know, in terms of in terms of getting people into their cars. And I don't know if they're satisfied with the sales that they have, um, or if they want to reach figures or if they can even reach figures of Toyota, you know, magnitude. But Kia and Hyundai are big automakers, and I'm sure they want to reach those those um, peaks right
1: yeah but their their ability to do that is going to be based on the fact that they have a huge amount of money they can just throw at the telluride and keep it on the market it's not you know it's not really hurting them that it doesn't sell in huge numbers right away i guess is what i'm saying Mm. like it's not like mazda where they can't really afford to make a mistake i'm not saying the telluride is anything close to a mistake but i'm saying that that kia can afford to be patient in a way that maybe other automakers can't and that's the same philosophy that's guiding genesis Okay.
0: Um, and then before we change subject here, I was talking about this product to, um, to my father-in-law who lives in the Middle East. And he is surprised with this vehicle because it doesn't exist in global markets, the Telluride. In fact, the only way you can get one of these um, three-row SUVs from Kia is to instead get a Hyundai Palisade, which is essentially the same product. But it just doesn't have the same styling, I think, as the as the Telluride. And I thought that was really interesting that this is a product that seems almost tailor-made for the American audience. Um, um, and it could succeed in other markets too, I think.
1: But I, I just want to point out that uh, in 2020, they sold – or sorry, in, in 2019, they sold 58,000 Tellurides. Yeah. That's a pretty decent number. That's double the they number of CX-9s. Three...
0: They sold 300,000 Islanders, man.
1: Yeah, but I mean, like we said, this, this is a brand new model they're trying to get people into. I can't find numbers for last Sorry, year. Sorry,
0: not 300, 200,000.
1: 200,000. I can't find numbers for last year, but I think 60,000 examples in the say in, in the first year that the vehicle comes out is is pretty good. I think that's um, the first full year, yeah. Uh, I But then you look at other numbers, like in the same year, Atlas did like 81,000. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that
0: like, annoys me. The, and that's another thing. What is it about the Atlas that is actually, that is actually marketable? I don't get it. I really don't understand that. They, I, maybe, I need to, maybe I need to get myself back into an Atlas, but um, there's no redeeming feature of the Volkswagen Atlas other than it being, I don't know, a Volkswagen in some way. It I, is not an, an appealing product.
1: I also, I've also read that um, they can only build about 100,000 Tellurides a year. Okay. So that that or they're, they're, that's their upper number that they're reaching towards. So it's about 13 percent of their total product sales in North America, which is pretty decent. OK, so they're they're making
0: decent work here. And like I said, I think the image and the just the, the like it's a top down vehicle. You see the Stellarite, you want it. Maybe you don't want something that large. And you look at the Sorento that has as many features or you look at the K9, which has as many features or whatever, a stinger. And I think that's a really good strategy for, for, um, Kia.
1: I'm just trying, I think I almost found the 2020 sales, but you know what? It's not super important, but, uh, there is something else that, uh, Oh, I did find them. I'm going to, I'm going to say them because I'm excited about them. Uh, Oh, no, it's year-to-date. That's not helpful. All right, forget about it. Forget <laughs> about it. So there's, okay, there's, ben, yeah. there's something else I wanted to talk about this this podcast, and that's a, a book that I've been reading recently from Motorbooks, and it's called 1970 Maximum Muscle, Sammy. Um, 1970? The, yes, the, the Pinnacle of Muscle Car Power. The idea is this book is written by Mark Fletcher. Oh, it's in reference to the year. Not, what did okay. you think? It, well, no, I, I want to hear what you thought it was in reference to. Maybe it was
0: something else. Maybe it was the 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 year. I mean, not the year. It's the number of muscle cars that were sold.
1: Who knows? Okay, so the number of muscle cars that were sold. Let's get a second. Let's get a second. <laughs> what it, what could nineteen seventy have been? <laughs> Tell me. Uh, <laughs> it's it's the book is written by Mark Fletcher and Richard Trusdell, and the idea is from their perspective, nineteen seventy was the peak of the muscle car because
0: that one year. Yes.
1: That is where everything came together, and just before the EPA and insurance prices wiped muscle cars pretty much off the board, that didn't take very long. It was literally just two years uh, later that you couldn't really find anything that had re- decent levels of performance because of, you know, smog restrictions and companies that were cutting engine sizes and all that. So you had like this buildup from, you could say, 1964 to 1970. And by 1970, that's the year where you got things like the Chevelle with the LS6 V8. You had all of the big block cars were out. The LS6 is one of those cars. Um, you had Ford with the, the 429 and the 428. You had the 426 Hemi was in its glory years, the 440 as well from Chrysler. So you had all of these cars available at the same time. And this book covers all the major American manufacturers, Dodge, Plymouth, Chevrolet, Pontiac, Buick uh amc ford and mercury and it's nice to see companies like buick amc and mercury in there because you don't always get that from a uh a, a muscle car focused type of book a lot of times cars like the cougar are forgotten uh the gsx or the you know the sc rambler or the rebel so what i liked about this book it's a it's a big coffee table book and when i first got it i was like okay this is gonna be it's 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 got a lot of 70s uh, graphic design and there's going to be a lot of pretty pictures and probably not a lot of information. But I was wrong about that. The book actually uh, takes a pretty detailed look at the major cars that were built by the manufacturers I just mentioned. So it's split up in a couple of ways. It does do it by manufacturer, but it also talks about Trans Am, so cars that were built for that racing series. And it talks about some of the drag cars that were built. And... um, it's it, it talks about the aero cars, so when Ford built the Torino Talladega, and Dodge built the Charger 500 and the Charger Daytona, and then Plymouth built the Superbird for NASCAR competition. And there's a decent amount of detail about each of those vehicles that's listed with a few sidebars for cars that are important, like the... Um, the, I think the King Cobra Torino that was never actually built. And in fact, that they fired uh, the, uh, the people who designed it just, just shortly after it came out uh, as a prototype. But like cars that they meant to race and then for whatever reason rules changed and whatnot. So they never did. Things like that are in here too. So I was uh, I was really impressed. It's, uh, it's a book where you'll learn a few things um, if you're a muscle car fan. You'll also be happy to see some of the original ads and some of the behind-the-scenes photos of these cars that you maybe aren't that familiar with. And it's reasonably priced; it's at forty-five dollars US, and it came out last month, so it's still pretty new. Um, you can get it from—I I think you can get it from anywhere uh, these books are sold. But um, we're going to list the uh, a link to the book in the <laughs> podcast notes as well as the ISBN, uh, so you can order it if you need to. It's 176 pages. It's a good size for a big hardcover book, and it was just fun. It was a nice look at um, muscle cars across the board without any kind of homerism about favorite brands and that kind of stuff.
0: Can you talk to me about – so you think there was no, like um... – What's the word I'm looking for? There was no preference or favoritism. There was nothing that made you made you think that the authors were leaning into one of these vehicles being cooler or better than the other?
1: No, especially when you consider that, that there is some deep dives into the Torino's and to the AMC's and the Buick's. I mean, these are vehicles that don't often see a lot of love in the muscle car community. So there was a real effort made to be inclusive with this subject matter of this particular book.
0: And how much information did, I mean, how much did you know about these? this whole 1970 sort of peak? Um, a muscle car and did you learn any you know, new facts or new features, anything you want to share, any anecdotes or stories that you think are, are worth reading about in this book?
1: I, I knew a lot about it because this is the kind of thing that I write about as well and in fact there's <laughs> a couple things in here that maybe I didn't necessarily agree with <laughs> but okay. uh, there's that's balanced out by a lot of stuff where like it, it talked about some of the later cougars which were not necessarily something that you would um, come across in in general when you're talking about muscle cars, like the Cougar sort of mod- morphed from a a Mustang equivalent to a larger, more comfortable, more luxurious Mustang equivalent in this time period. And like a the book- GT car, I guess, yeah, kind of. It, it always it had a longer wheelbase than the Mustang. It was like seven inches longer, um, right from the start. But it got even bigger in 1970. And this book covers both of those bases, so that was something that I like to see. Uh, cause I'm, I'm not a huge Mustang guy, but I do like the underdog and the, the Cougar is definitely an underdog.
0: <laughs> and, and do you have a favorite in this whole segment?
1: No, not What's really. Era? There's a lot. I used to really, really be into muscle cars. And when I was growing up as a kid, these are the cars I cared about the most. Uh, I was really into like the 71 Cuda and the Dodge Charger and whatnot. And I still like those cars, but as I've gotten older, I, my interests have moved on. I wouldn't say moved on more like broadened. So I can appreciate a lot of these cars almost across the board for what they were,
0: but there were so many interesting. Vehicles. Wasn't like nineteen seventy, um, the, like the Plymouth Superbird, for example.
1: Yes. So the okay. the, the Charger Daytona came out in sixty nine, and then the seventy was the Plymouth Superbird.
0: And then GTO, there was a special version of the GTO, I think, the
1: Judge. Yes, the Judge. Do you know? Do you know what's funny about the Superbird and the the Daytona with their giant wings, right? Yeah. Do you know why the wing is so tall? Uh, no. So I guess aerodynamics. No, that would be the reasonable guess. The actual answer is so they could open the trunk. (laughs) Huh? Yeah, the trunk had to be able to fit underneath it. Huh? Yeah, a lot of the aero heavy lifting on those cars is done by the front end where they extended it by, I think, 18 to 19 inches and added a completely different different nose cone onto the standard... Uh, Roadrunner and, and Charger, and in fact, if you look at the two vehicles right. side by side, the Charger Daytona and the Superbird, there almost no panels interchange. It's uh, they look similar, but the cars are radically different.
0: And then there was, and then there was like the Trans Am and uh, like the Firebird Trans Am and the Camaro. There was a special Camaro as well. Was that Z twenty eight that year?
1: Yeah, Z twenty eight. So what's interesting about the Trans Am? So many cool cars. What's interesting about the Firebird Trans Am? Is in order to participate in Trans Am Racing, you had to sell and build and sell a certain number of cars to the public, right? That mm-hmm. that was the whole idea. And this was true of almost any racing series in that era. And the numbers would vary, but it was generally more than like a handful, right? right. so. Um, the rule in Trans Am racing was there were two categories. There were two liter engines, which is where you saw cars from Porsche and Datsun and whatnot competing, and then you had five liters and under, which is where Mustang and and, and the Camaro were were mm. and and also the I think the AMC Javelin was competing at that time. Um, mm. In any case, uh, Trans Am the Pontiac didn't have a five liter motor. They didn't. They, they just didn't have anything like that in their portfolio. So they built a 303 cubic inch engine that was very specific just to Trans Am racing and they only built like 3 of them and then they somehow convinced um the the people at, at SECA that they were like yeah yeah you, you should let this car in we we, we want to have a car called the Trans Am and we'll license the name and and we'll build a special model and we'll, we'll race it and they were like okay and they never really um actually built the cars they were supposed to build <laughs> so we- I can't flipped remember. My, flipped my mind. Yeah, the engine. I'm trying to remember what I think it had a 400 cubic inch engine on the street because that was I think the smallest V8 that you could get from Pontiac at that time. Uh, but it, it's just a funny like like anecdote. A lot of this this era was GM divisions running around behind each other's back, not wanting to use each other's parts and trying to make things work and compete against each other. So that's kind of a, a funny piece of of history. And then the Trans Am, you know, blew up and become became a really big model. Uh, the year later, they I think they stopped racing them, and uh, DeLorean, who was in charge of Pontiac at the time, was like, hey, we're just going to sell on them on the street and make a ton of money, and that's what they did.
0: <laughs> I, I, I might actually take a look at this book. I'm really excited about it, and I, I think there's a lot for me to learn. Um, I have a bit of a blind spot with uh, these vehicles well before the uh, – sorry, before the 80s or so, and I think there are some interesting um, – it's like – I don't know if the same – like to me, so many of the developments that happened in the – between the 70s and 80s or before the 80s, it's, it feels like a different world now. We're in a, we're in a whole – it feels like so many of the innovations that came in during that time have now been so thoroughly surpassed that we don't, we don't see them as often these days.
1: Well, the 70s was a very dark time automotive-wise. Um, right. It was, you know, the mala- the Malays era was in full swing by the middle of the decade. And by the early 80s, muscle cars weren't collectible. The, it, people would, you know, if you saw a Charger or an old Mustang on a car lot, it was just a used car. And it wasn't a very good used car because it took a ton of gas. And mm-hmm. that was an era in the early 80s where gas was expensive. And the energy crisis had there been two back-to-back energy crises that had just really shaken people's uh, faith in the foundation of... I guess the economy and the ability of the government to, wherever you were living, to guarantee a lifestyle that you'd had before. I mean, it's a really awkward thing to say or way of (laughs) saying it, but but I think people had lost a lot of faith in institutions. So there was this era of muscle cars where they were over the top fast and giant power and huge cubic inches and the future is going to be like today, but just forever. You know, there was there was no uh, accountability. There was no idea that things could ever be different or worse. And that era, I don't think people w- really wanted to tap into that in the early 80s. They were kind of buckling down the hatches and trying to make a life for themselves and figuring out how things were going to be. And car companies were in the same position because they had – no real idea how to deal with um, the need for more efficient cars. They like Ford started working on aerodynamics to try and improve the efficiency of their vehicles, and they did a really good job. So you saw cars like the um, prototype – they had these series of prototypes in the 70s called mm. the Probe. And the probe one through three. And these vehicles would influence not the probe that came out later in the 80s, but vehicles like the Thunderbird and the Ford Taurus that cool. were they were totally different in terms of aero as compared to the models that had come before them. And they had GM, and, which was going towards uh, electronic controls they didn't really understand to try and get fuel injection working on a lot of their a lot of their vehicles. And then had Chrysler going towards turbocharging. So they had all these different technologies that were trying to do the same thing. And that was build a reliable, fuel-efficient car that America could afford and i mean i think we're
0: like those how how, are those staples of those automaker are those pillars of those automakers at this point in time i don't think so um you know what i mean it wasn't a generational adjustment for them it was just a solution at a time Um, that they needed, right?
1: Yeah, but you start to see there were some bright spots, like when the uh, Camaro, for example, was redesigned in 82. Mm -hmm. Um, It was hugely different from the one that had come before it. You'd seen the second-generation Camaro through the 70s just went through this, like, spiral, downward spiral of terrible performance. It was a huge, heavy car with almost no horsepower. And then -hmm. in 1982, they came out with a very aerodynamic version of the Camaro that had coil springs instead of leaf springs, and he all of a sudden had fuel injection available right off right from the start, even though it was the terrible crossfire system that was replaced <laughs> a couple of years later. But a car like that, that was a game changer for GM. And the quality wasn't great because no quality was great for General Motors at that time. <laughs> but yep. that's something that improved over the lifespan of the car. Yep. Um, and it was it was a radical break with the past. So you started to see a lot of things like that. You had Chrysler's minivans and then the Ford Taurus in 85 when it came out for the 86 model year these were very very different cars than anything that had been available from detroit beforehand and some of that too was the japanese influence because japan came over with cars that at first mimicked the americans but then yep. began to innovate in ways that the americans hadn't bothered trying
0: okay so this is the book is called 1970 maximum muscle the loud and fast story of muscle cars peak year
1: the, the pinnacle of muscle car power and it's by mark fletcher and richard trousseau
0: very cool Uh, So I can't wait. I think we'll have a link of that on our show notes. Yes. Um, And I think that's it for this week's episode. Why don't we tell the listeners where they can find uh, previous episodes of our podcast?
1: You could find previous episodes at unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. If you go there, you'll find all 223 episodes Uh, listed on the site. You can also go to your favorite podcatcher. There's buttons that will let you subscribe on our site, or you can just go to your podcatcher and search the name of our podcast and find it there. Um, You can catch up and hear what we were talking about four years ago and see how much we've grown. Absolutely. Additionally, while you're at our website, um, you can subscribe to
0: us using a bunch of buttons on, on the website. You can subscribe to us using whatever your podcast client is. Um, And you can also get in touch with us. There's a contact form on our website. You fill that out, and it will send a note to our inboxes, and we'll read it, and we will talk about it and probably talk about it on the podcast as well. Furthermore, you can email us the old-fashioned way. It's benjamin at benjaminhunting.com, and you can also get in touch with us on social media. You can find Ben on Instagram. He's at huntingbenjamin, all one word, and you can find me at... On Twitter, I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. And, uh, Sammy, what are you going to be driving next week?
1: Uh, It's a GMC of some sort. I think it's the Terrain. Wow, that is vague and enticing at the same time. I'm going to be driving the Mercedes-AMG GLE 63. Very cool. I can't wait to hear about it. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Take care.